Movie buff specialists Phil and John are back and welcome back to episode two for anybody who turned into episode one. It was a lot of fun and John and I are both very excited to continue going through our top 100 movies of all time. For the first episode, we discussed our number 100s, which for John was Les Mis and for me was The Descendants. Today, we are continuing our streak of movies that have absolutely nothing to do with one another, except for the fact that, yes, they appear at number 99 on our list. We are doing my number 99, The Wrestler, and John's number 99, Toy Story from 1995. These two movies could not be further apart from each other. And this is going to be a lot of fun. One thing I want to touch on right at the beginning before I introduce, before I turn it over to John, we don't need to introduce him anymore. We all know who he is. But before I turn it over to John, I just want to say we had gotten some questions about how were we going to do this when we had duplicates. And me and John did have duplicates in this list. The way that we decided to do it was we really are going to do this one movie at a time. That is our plan for now. We'll see how it goes. Might start doing multiple episodes a week or something along those lines. But right now, just one episode a week. But when we had duplicates, rather than skipping over a movie and starting to get confusing where we're on my 77 and John's 76 or, oh, let's not talk. Let's do a full hour dedicated to a movie. We decided that we would do alternate movies, movies that didn't make our list, but were close to making the list. And this way, we still had a different movie to talk about, do a little comparison to what the movie is that we actually had on our list and couldn't talk about and do the full fledged episode for the movie that is supposed to come in there at the higher ranking. So for instance, I have Lord of the Rings, the two towers at number, I think it's 90 uh, or it's 91, something along those lines. We'll talk about it when we actually get there. John has it much higher than me. So for that movie, I found an alternate for Lord of the Rings, the two towers. We won't be talking about the two towers that week. Instead, we'll be talking about it when John talks about it way higher up on the list. All that being said, out of the way, John, welcome back. This was your first time watching The Wrestler. It sure was. And boy, I don't know what I was expecting going into this movie, but it wasn't this. <laughs> but it was, it's a beautiful movie. It's fantastic how Aronofsky just captures this character study. And it's so just focused in on Randy the Ram Robinson and his life. And it just feels so great, despite how disheartening the entire movie really is. And, and then on the opposite end of the spectrum, a movie that I saw in theaters as a kid. It was the second movie I'd ever seen in theaters uh, behind The Lion King. A movie that we've all probably watched a half dozen times, if not a dozen, if not two dozen times. The original Toy Story. Yeah, in fact, it was also the second movie I ever saw in theaters, but the first movie I saw was GoldenEye two weeks beforehand. <laughs> uh, but it was the first one I got all the way through. I did fall asleep during GoldenEye. But yeah, Toy Story, it just has that classic feel to it, and it's a great thing to harken back to. It's also a very prolific movie when it comes down to it, and I'm looking forward to discussing these two films tonight. Yeah. So if you're in for this, these are as opposite as it gets. This does not happen all the way through. John and I were actually doing a little bit as we went through the nineties to see, um, you know, what, what we thought about some of these matchups and it does get interesting. We have some opposites here next week's though is a little bit more similar. We'll get to that. We're going to start off talking about the wrestler though. So if you're a huge toy story fan and you have no clue what's going on, you're probably going to want to fast forward a little bit, or maybe this will sell you on the wrestler 
Darren Aronofsky's amazing film. It's so small and yet so massive at the same time. This comes in at my number 99. It's actually the third best movie I had for 2008. Um, this way I don't go around saying that it was the best. Mickey Rourke totally robbed this year uh, at the Oscars. Sean Penn won. I did like Sean Penn and Milk, but if Mickey Rourke wasn't crazy, I think he ends up winning the Oscar for this. And also, it doesn't help that this movie was so brutal. A lot of Academy members didn't watch it. And we'll get to that. I have the impossible on my list higher up. And a lot of Academy members admitted to not watching it because it was too brutal. And that's why Naomi Watts doesn't win Best Actress that year because nobody watched the movie. Tom Holland doesn't get nominated because nobody watched But that's kind of a problem a lot of times. You have to think they've started to kind of diversify the Academy a little bit, start letting more people in and all of that. But a lot of times it's older people who don't want to watch this kind of movie. And if anybody's a huge fan of Arnofsky movies or isn't a huge fan of Arnofsky movies, you're either a massive fan or not a massive fan for the same reason. And it's because his movies are too realistic. They're incredibly graphic. They stick with you for a very, very long time. Requiem for a Dream at one point was in my like top 25 movies of all time. It has since fallen off because despite the fact that that is a masterpiece and it is such a great movie, I cannot get through it anymore. It's the scariest movie of all time. And heroin addiction was a big thing in my hometown. So that movie is not nearly as enjoyable for me as it was when I was in high school and thought I was a badass. But anyway, all of that being said, The Wrestler is just absolutely brutal and i want to hear what john has to say being that this was the first time he'd ever seen the movie the wrestler maybe darren aronofsky's most successful movie mm-hmm. um and really we're just always focused in on randy the ram and it's a world that some of us know a bit about some of us don't know a bit about i know personally i never really grew up watching wrestling or anything like that did you phil um, no, but I had a friend who was pretty much obsessed with it. So I knew enough about it. I would play like WCW Nitro and WWF SmackDown. Like I'd play the video games. So I knew the, I knew the wrestlers, but I did not put two and two together that like they were on steroids. And like when Eddie Guerrero, like had the, the horrific moment, Chris Benoit had the horrific moment. Like I did not know that mm-hmm. this was really kind of what was going on. Yeah. So it's a very interesting investigation into that whole world that is all sparkly and all these show or there's this force of showmanship and to see this dark underbelly of that world and Mickey Rourke's performance in this movie is absolutely incredible mm-hmm. he feels so broken the entire time and What's so devastating, like you were saying about Arnofsky films, is how relatable they are. And this is a movie that is downright unsettling sometimes because of how realistic its characters are. Mm-hmm. And the portrayal of them and how you're witnessing what they're going through. And you're like, man, this could be happening to me right now. And that's scary. Well, and and that's the thing with this. Because even though it's about a professional wrestler, which I will never be and John will never be. It's still a movie about somebody who had everything and no longer has anything. And that's the biggest fear. You know, a lot of Arnofsky movies, what I always end up coming out of them with is his question a lot of the time is, would you rather have nothing and lose it all or just rather never have it in the first place? Mm-hmm. And and that's something, you know, as somebody who was in the film industry for a while and was working in there and and was always contemplating, is this worth it? 
it really is difficult because you even see it with Mickey Rourke who vanished for the longest time because he was, you know, he was crazy. And, and it is that, that rise and that fall. And you see it with actors and actresses, once they age, are they still going to be relevant and all of that? And what Arnofsky did was he took it and he just put it in the world of professional wrestling. And I grew up in New Jersey. Winters in North Jersey are disgusting. And, and, and the thing is you'll get those people who are like, well, I'm from North Jersey. Yeah. And you live in like, a massive ranch you're in saddle ranch or you're in you're in you know somewhere up in the northwest of the state in the northeast of the state where it's closer to new york city it is just house on top of house you have irvington clark rawway elizabeth and everything is just so congested and when it gets cold and it's miserable there it's ugly it sucks now i grew up in the southern part where my dad was from up there so this movie like when they go to the asbury park boardwalk I went to the Asbury Park Boardwalk last winter, you know, the winter before COVID. And when you're at the Asbury Park Boardwalk in the winter, it's downright depressing because it's freezing. It's dead. There might be three other people on the entire boardwalk and it's cold and it's barren and it sucks. And I think setting this movie in the Northeast in the winter is such a smart idea because you're not setting it in Maine or in New Hampshire or Vermont where People like to be a little more isolated. You don't live in a big city, but to set it in a place where it seems like there's so much going on and there's so many people all over the place, but to make it still such a lonely movie is, is just a brilliant, brilliant decision. No, absolutely. And you feel that isolation throughout the entire time. You see that Randy's not able to connect with anyone throughout the entire movie. And even when we get to a point where we are connecting, where we do see him connecting with other characters, it all comes crashing down eventually, too. And that's that emptiness that Aronofsky is trying to capture here. And I think part of it also comes to the way he shoots the film. Mm-hmm. Because there are so many points where the camera angles and the decisions that Aronofsky makes with the camera just echo this idea of like the isolation because it almost feels we have a lot of shots where we're just following Randy and it it almost has like this home video vibe to it. Mm -hmm. And that even that makes it seem like how far Randy's come since his rise in the eighties. And when he was this big prolific wrestler. Yeah. And, and, and so again, I always forget to do this off the top, but there will be spoilers. So if you don't like spoilers run away, because that's, that's the only way we can discuss these movies. And one of my favorite shots, literally of all time of all time in any movie ever is when Randy, the Ram Robinson is walking out to his first day as the deli at the deli counter. (laughs) And he's walking through the entire backstage of the Acme. He's got the hairnet on and he's walking through and it's all the tight hallways and the camera's just following him. And it's one, sh- one giant tracking shot and you hear the crowd every now and then start cheering. Uh, and then it goes away and then, uh, and he walks through the plastic whatevers and he walks through them and you hear the crowd erupt. And it's like this guy, this is what he's, th- we're in his mind. Because in his mind, it's like, this is what I'm going to do. And you even see when he is working the deli counter, it's the, I'm an entertainer. How can I entertain people? To the point where some of them are flat out creeped out by him. But that shot is just so unbelievable because of what it's able to accomplish. Because a lot of times when you do watch professional wrestling, 
You either watch them walking down and then you get the big shot when they come out and everybody goes crazy and the crowd goes nuts, or you're kind of getting the behind the scenes documentary style feel where they are in those back lock, whatever you would call it, like in the behind the scenes of the stadium. And so when he's choosing to do this, it's almost voyeuristic. It's, it's documentary filmmaking and you're not watching Randy the Ram. You are Randy the Ram. The way he does the first 10 minutes of the movie, you don't even see Mickey Rourke's face. <laughs> it's, I can't, I, I'm doing the match. You barely get paid. You go home, you're locked out. You need your back pills. Like you're him because you never see him. And I think that that's just such a, and then as soon as he's with the kids, that's when you're no longer Randy the Ram. Now he's <laughs> the Ram. But when he's Randy, you're Randy along with Arnofsky and the audience. But when he's the Ram, we don't have time for that. That that's when, that's when we see Mickey Rourke being Mickey Rourke. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the beauty. One of the most beautiful things about this movie is how Arnofsky decided to open it with that uh, sequence where we're just tracking after Randy through the entire thing. We don't see his face for so long because we have the opening credit scene sequence where it's highlighting his career in the eighties and how everything was huge gives us the hints as to what might happen a little later in the movie setting up the uh rematch with the ayatollah and everything like that but by putting randy in a situation where we're just running through how far he's fallen since then when we first see him and because we're put behind him and we're meant to felt like we're living with him it gives you that connection with the character that doesn't happen when we're just looking at his face the entire time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we're unsettled too, because we don't really know what's going to be around the next corner. And that's what Arno I mean, Arnovsky, I always think about in Requiem for a Dream when he has the, uh, he chooses to use the cameras that are actually attached to the bodies in the one scene where Wayans is running down the street and, and the camera's with him and his, like, he does those weird things. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I'm not a fan of all of Arnofsky's movies. Um, this is the only one that's on my list. Requiem was very close to being on my list. But in terms of some of his other ones, they're very hit or miss for me. Black Swan was one of those. And I go I go in and out on Black Swan. Sometimes I'm like, that's a four-star masterpiece. Other times that's like a three-star movie that's very good. But, you know, it, that's really where the, I draw the line. And so, but this one I just feel like the execution of every little thing is so well thought out. I mean, when, when I, I, I forget who wrote the screenplay. I got to, I got to look that up. But when I look at this screenplay to decide to put an aging professional wrestler and an aging stripper, mm -hmm. and those are your two main characters, two people who at the height of their game might've been the best there ever was. And now their bodies are failing them and there's literally nothing they can do about it. But because they put everything they had into their profession, whether you like their professions or not, they did put everything they had into them. They have isolated themselves from the rest of the world. I mean, yes, it's not going to go up and be like, hey, let's watch this on Christmas morning because I can't wait to put myself in that mood. But it is just one of those really smart, clever ideas that's just a simple little twist. What does your character do for a living? And and to have the two of them going through these tough times and one who has a son and is doing everything she can to protect him to the point where everybody's a customer to her. Everybody. Mm -hmm. I can't I can't get close to anybody because clearly that kid is from one time she got close to a customer. Mm -hmm. And then Randy, who has no idea how to be a father. 
and to see the different approaches they took. And yet, you know what? They're both at the same points in their lives. They're both trying to find something else and there's nothing for them right now. I mean, it's, it's just, it's brutal, but it's so beautifully done. You can't turn away from it. Yeah. That's the thing is despite how uneasy this film makes you feel, you want to finish this movie. It's not that it's, yes, it has some very violent wrestling scenes in it. Mm-hmm. And some very disturbing wrestling scenes in it. And it kind of gives you this like, oh my God, is this actually what professional wrestling is? Like they're just self-harming themselves the entire time for entertainment. And when you think of it that way, they're kind of like the circus freaks of our generation, right? And you're you're just kind of stunned by the spectacle of the wrestling as it goes through. And then we have Marisa Tomei's character come in, and she's the only person that Randy can really connect with. And even as we progress through, we see then how they foil each other, in which Pam is wanting to keep her son safe, keep her protected, kind of cut herself off from things where you can tell Randy's kind of not trying to cut himself from from things. He's just trying to connect with things because he had a connection with the fans before and he's lost that because he's this aged out wrestler who suffered a heart attack and might not be able to wrestle ever again. And we see that. I think it's brilliantly shown in the scene where he gets the kid to come play Nintendo with him. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like he's just looking for some sort of connection and he doesn't want that kid to leave. And you you feel sad for him because this kid's just like, you're not cool. Mm-hmm. I'm leaving now. And you're just like, no, we want we want Randy to be victorious. And 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 I think it goes to the whole thing of like, you know, when when people talk about your parents were so cool until you were born and now you're, they're not cool anymore. And everybody has that fear of aging and getting old and, and falling out of touch and all of that. And especially when you're in the public eye like that, I mean, he was on the top of the world, all the muscles, all the girls, everybody is at the fan club, all that. And for it to all be gone. And now he can't even afford to live in his trailer. He gets locked out of his trailer. By the way, that's Mark Margolis. I think he's, I think you barely see his face. It's one of my favorite things is, you know, he goes on to be absolutely amazing and breaking bad. And he's in that movie for what one point six seconds. Um, so, but but to lose all of that, and and to the point of the only people he knows how to interact with, if you notice, are people who are breaking like him, or kids, because that's what an entertainer does is they try to build up kids, and other wrestlers. That's really the only people in the entire movie that he is able to connect with in any way, shape, or form. And, you know, the, the scenes with his daughter, with Evan Rachel Wood, are absolutely heartbreaking because every time it seems like something's going to go right, you just know it's all going to fall apart because that's the way it has to be. It has to be a fall apart. And you brought up the absolute violence of this movie and something that I couldn't get out of my mind as every time I watch this movie. And this is a movie – this could end up in my top 20 of all time at some point in my life. Just depending as, as I age, I feel like you always see movies through a different perspective as at different points in your life. And I do feel like this is one of those movies that could just keep going up and up because every time you watch it, you're just like, oh, And you want to talk about feeling. But but when I when I watch this – I with with Mickey Rourke, what Mickey Rourke is able to do with really like so little, it's all the subtleties and and things along those lines that I just I just love in this performance. And I'm trying to think of uh, I'm trying to think of where I wanted to go with this. But 
I just I had I had a train of thought, John, and it's totally gone. It'll come back to me, but go. But anyway, Mickey Rourke's performance, amazing. But th- there's there's a train of thought that is completely deserted my brain, and it's going to come back as soon as you start talking. Well, Mickey Rourke's performance in this is really encapsulated in I feel the contrast between the two deli scenes mm-hmm. in the movie because those are kind of our turning points. We have this turning point scene where he goes to that wrestling, we could call it a signing of some sort, I guess. Mm -hmm. And he's just looking around the room. And this is where it really becomes clear that Mickey Rourke can tell so much emotion just with one look. And he's looking around the room and he sees all these other aged out wrestlers. And it's this turning point for him where he's like, do I just want to do this for the rest of my life? Mm -hmm. And that's where we start seeing these good things happen to Randy. And it's perfectly captured in Mickey Rourke's face at that point. It's like, oh, I do need to change because I'm on death's doorstep if I continue mm-hmm. with this wrestling thing. I have a daughter whose relationship I should probably try to rekindle. And I, I, I want to get actually close to someone for once. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. And like, it's just so beautiful. And then we transition into that deli scene. Where he's so energetic and entertaining again, but you can see he's moved away from the wrestling aspect of it. And it's like, oh, he's taking on this normal life now, and he's ready to move on from wrestling. Yeah. And and what I had wanted to talk about was violence. That's where I was (laughs) at. And it it does relate back to this because – you know, I, I always heard it because I, I ran a lot. I ran through college and all of that. And and people would always talk about your knees. They're going to be destroyed. You're not going to be able to do this forever. And the hardcore scene in this movie, to me, is one of the most brutal scenes, arguably, in movie history. I know a lot of people always go to kind of like the Passion of the Christ, the scene where they're literally just beating the living daylights out of Jim Caviezel. I mean, that's absolutely brutal. But the the realism to this scene and what he does, which I think is another just I, I we've used the word brilliant so much, but another amazing choice by Arnofsky and the, the writer was Robert Siegel, who went on to write Turbo, Big Fan and The Founder. Not exactly the same movies I would be expecting, um, but the, the, the amazing choice they, they made here is that they show you the aftermath first, because guess what? We're watching the aftermath of Randy the Rams wrestling career first before we actually find out what he did. I know we get the whole, oh, there's, you know, your clips and the announcers and whatever in the opening credits, but we're getting the aftermath. And so we get in this scene, which is one of the hardest watch scenes ever, is this aftermath. And to show it then afterwards and be like, Okay, you know it's going to get bad, but get ready because it's really going to get bad. You have that anticipation the entire time. And it's really what you're thinking with Randy when he you find out he has a daughter and all these other past relationships. It's how bad is this really going to be? How terrible is this going to be? And And in that scene when he's getting hit with – Everything, the barbed wire, the staple gun, all of that. And you see this younger guy who's doing this with him who hasn't – he can't run anymore. Please don't throw me across the ring or anything. But he hasn't completely felt the effects like Randy has. And here's Randy in his 50s. How much can you put your body through for the art and for the thing you love? The answer is you can only take so much. 
and we see finally Randy end up, you know, having the heart attack and breaking down and all of that. But he's left by the time he gets to these deli scenes and going to go see his daughter and all that. He's left with no choice. And I think that's what's so good about this, too, is if he had never had a heart attack, he would have never gone see his daughter. He would have never tried to get more hours, at least at a deli counter. No, now he's desperate. He doesn't have a choice. He's got to do something. And it's because he has nothing. And I think that doing that and showing that his body has literally been through everything and this guy's mind has now been through everything. Now he can come to terms with it because he knows he put everything he had out there and everything in the world that he was supposed to do. He gave it the best shot he could possibly get. And then it's when he has to give up the Ayatollah and everything starts to fall apart for him that it's like, who cares what happens to my body? As long as I go out there and I give it everything I have, if this is it, this is it. Because I, I think it's, I think the movie's perfectly summed up just in the last line when he's talking to, or, you know, one of the last lines when he's talking to Marisa Tomei and he says, that's where I belong out here. I just get hurt in there. It's, and, and I think that there's just perfectly sums it up because he tries everything he possibly can because he doesn't have a choice. And, what for? It's not for anything. Everything just ends up biting him back. It doesn't matter. Well, that's the big thing with Randy trying to do the right thing. And it's like, that's why this movie is so heartbreaking is because he is trying to do the right thing. He's trying to be better on himself. He's trying to prolong his life. He's trying to connect with people. He's trying to rekindle his relationship with his daughter, who he completely abandoned. Mm-hmm. And we see him doing that. We see him making the progress. And then it just falls flat on his face again. Mm-hmm. And it's so disheartening because he's he's just been working so hard. And he tried it. He tried. But in the end, the only thing he can do is wrestle. Mm-hmm. And the only thing he can come back to is the crowd cheering for him. And he even says that in his final little bit of monologue there before the match where he's just like, you're the family that I have. And it's so touching. But at the same time, you're like, I know where this is going to end up. This is very destructive behavior. Oh, absolutely. And it all goes to one last Ram jam. I mean, the Ayatollah who is Bob at that point is like, come on, man, just pin me. We've given enough, given enough. And no, he has to go up there one more time, even though he knows it's probably going to kill him. You know, I mean, this is one of those movies to me doesn't matter if he actually died or not in that moment. You know, his heart's fallen. It seems like he's going to have another heart attack. To me, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that Randy the Ram Robinson did exactly what Randy the Ram Robinson wanted to do. And it's the whole, you know, die doing what you love. He takes that literally. And he has to go up there for one more Ram Jam to hear the crowd going crazy. And he's crying. He's got nothing left. One last time just to prove he could still do it. And to give the fans what they wanted because he's let down everybody else. How could he let them down? It's it's absolutely stunning how, how he pulls it off from beginning to end, Arnofsky, in this one. And I think this is a very underappreciated movie. I know when it came out, it was on a lot of top ten lists and things like that. But it's always as you move away, people have an easier time based on box office or Oscar wins and things along those lines. The wrestler didn't have many Oscar nominations. In fact, it only had two. And so because it only had the two Oscar nominations, I feel like it gets lost in the mix. I would honestly say, and and people can keep on the record for this, and I have no problem with it, because I have I have it kind of sorted out. 
Mickey Rourke's performance in this top 10, possibly top five performance in the history of movies. I'm talking female, male. I really believe that because what he's able to do with that Botox-laden face is so incredible. And you see the light in his eyes when things start going well, and you see the, the darkness when things start going bad. It's one of the great performances in movie history. I think it's super, super underappreciated. One, because it's little seen. And two, because unfortunately, Mickey Rourke is not everybody's favorite person in the entire world. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that's one of the unfortunate things with a movie like this is it does have this tendency to slip through the cracks as we get further away from it because it didn't get that Academy mm-hmm. hole that a lot of other movies had. It didn't get that box office. So because of that, I mean, if we talk to people five years our junior, Phil, are they going to even know this movie exists? Probably not. Not unless they're giant wrestling fans. Because I was even looking up the movie earlier today on Wikipedia to see what other wrestlers said about it. And there's a lot of wrestlers who are into it, but those wrestlers are like Rowdy Roddy Piper. Mm -hmm. People don't really know who Rowdy Roddy Piper is anymore. Like that's like I'm sure diehards know, but if you're watching the new – the new thing you start to forget. I mean, do people still talk about Sid Vicious when it comes to the WWE? Do they talk? Do they talk about those? Types? Like, I don't know who people talk about, but like, I remember Sid Vicious. I remember Rey Mysterio. Like, I remember those types of characters, and I don't know if people do. And I feel like that's kind of what's happening here with this movie. Is it's it's, it's one of those things that can just be forgotten a time, and it's unfortunate because I I mean it's if you can get through the violence and through all of the. The depressing. I mean, I watch this on a Monday, and therefore my whole week is ruined. But it's just, it's just one of those movies that, you know, how do you make this? Like, how do you pull this off, and how do you do it so expertly? Where it's so everything feels so hopeless the entire time, and you still hold out hope for this guy the entire movie, and you still root for him even though he's doesn't not a very nice guy. No, not at all. He's not a very redeemable character. Like he has this little bit of redemption arc, but he he lapses mm-hmm. completely. And utterly, he gets he becomes despicable again towards the end. But you're mm-hmm. still rooting for him, and that has to just do with how human this movie is. And that's what really I think separates this movie from a lot of movies is every single aspect of it feels so human. It's a movie about human nature and life. Guys, this is a movie about wrestling. Yeah, and and I always I always like these movies, and I know you know this is about a superstar. But I always like these movies that are about kind of normal people living lives that they think are so important. Because we all want to think our lives are incredibly important. We all do. I mean, that's the reason I do a podcast. It's the reason we wake up in the mornings because we have to feel like there's a purpose here. But I always like these movies that are about ordinary people doing things that they think are extraordinary when in reality they're not. And all these massive moments that feel so important to them really aren't that important in the grand scheme of life, but it's so important to them. So many people around the world have problems if they're a father with their daughter and are, you know, single parent homes and who, what happened with mom. And we don't even, I don't even think the mom is mentioned, but like this happens all the time, but to see somebody care so much and to get connected to that character, that's the impressive thing that Arnofsky and Siegel and Rourke and Tomei and Evan Rachel Wood are able to pull off in this movie. That is just, it's so understated and it's so hard to do. And, uh, Yes, I would take this movie over Slumdog Millionaire any day of the week. Um, but, you know, that's just that's just my personal taste. And, uh, you know, I'm not surprised the Academy would go a different route on that. 
No, not at all. Um, though some of the familiar has some scenes that are just as brutal as the scenes here. So it's true. That is true. It's a feel good movie though. This yeah. one's not downer endings. Don't work downer. And I mean, I, I have adaptation on my list. We'll be talking about that at some point, but you know, like uh, Robert McKee says in the movie, wow. him in the end, the wrestler might wow you, but it certainly doesn't make you feel like, wow. When you walk out, you feel like shit. <laughs> when you walk out, it's a big difference. Well, it's okay. That's why most of our top 100s make you feel anyways. So we're in for a good ride here, everyone. We really are. So, so I want to talk. Uh, I want to talk a little Oscars. Matt Miller just said this was post Black Swan or the movie before. It was before Black Swan. Um, and and then Arnowski goes out and wins Natalie Portman an Oscar mm-hmm. with another great character study. I mean, I love I love these types of things. But let's talk about the Oscars. Uh, to me, this is actually one of the worst Oscar years in modern history. I feel like back in the early days, they got it wrong a lot. Mm-hmm. And they started to kind of course correct a little bit. And you always have for every English patient, you know, I mean, those are out there. It happens. But to me, this is one of the worst years for the Oscars because not so much for what won. Slumdog Millionaire to me is a good movie. Like I like Slumdog Millionaire. I really do. But the nominations that year, The Dark Knight okay. wasn't nominated. Uh, I think Robert Downey Jr. did get the nomination for um, – for for Tropic Thunder, which we'll be talking about soon, um, you know, the but the Dark Knight's not nominated, the wrestler's not nominated, and and they went the safe route. Like the Reader, to me, is one of the most boring movies I've ever seen, and I like Stephen Daldry, and to me, that's just a horrible, horrible movie. Like it's it, there's just nothing there that gets a nomination for an Oscar. Um, Milk, I thought was a very good movie, but you know, again, is Sean Penn really better? That Sean Penn is playing somebody we've seen before, who there's okay. real life footage of. Mickey Rourke is creating this character from here. I mean, yeah. that to me is just unbelievable. Marissa Tomei loses out to Penelope Cruz um, for for Vicky Cristina Barcelona, which I like that movie. Penelope Cruz is very good in it. To me, Marissa Tomei is better. But Doubt also came out that year, and Amy Adams or Viola Davis could have easily won the Oscar for that too, and I wouldn't have been disappointed. But in terms of like writing, things along those lines, the wrestler is not in any of that. And then the one that kills me, because I remember when the trailer came out and all that is Bruce Springsteen was not nominated for the Oscar this year for the song, the wrestler. And to me, normally when a movie ends and the credits start rolling, you can just turn it off. That's it. Whatever. Cool. But you need to sit through the entire song of the wrestler every time because it tells the story again. And it fits that movie so perfectly. And I always hate when like the movie, the, the song that gets nominated is a song that plays at the end. Like I want my song in the movie, you know, Philadelphia. That's what I want. I want, I want the Neil Young Philadelphia when they're showing it over the clips, you know, but yeah. with this movie, I feel like it is such a perfect ending to it because the song is about Randy, the Ram Robinson. And this is on an album. This is on the working on a dream album. Yeah. And yet you can't listen to that song on that album without immediately thinking of this movie and immediately thinking of this character. And I get it. Jai Ho is a lot more fun. But at the end of the day, they're not even the same ballpark. It, it no. just – it just this just captures everything about this movie. And didn't have to win, but to not even be nominated just absolutely blows my mind. And that's what I say about that. One of the worst Oscar years in modern history by far. Um it's just it's just disappointing, pretty much from top to bottom. I forget. It was also the other surrounded time. by two of the best, so that also doesn't help. Yeah, with 2007 and 2009, that also doesn't help. Where there was a lot going on in all of those years that we just really didn't get in this year uh, at yeah. all. So, you got anything else you want to talk about with the wrestler uh, before we move on to the movie that people actually know what we're talking about? Uh, no, no, this is check it out. Seriously, I know we've talked about how. 
kind of depressing this movie is, but it's worth a watch. It, it's worth it just to understand exactly what a character study is. Mm-hmm. And and just to throw this in before we go, Frost Nixon, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Milk, and The Reader were the other movies nominated for Best Picture that year. I do not like Ben Button. Frost Nixon is okay. The Reader is bad. Milk is a good movie. Slumdog is a, a good to very good movie. But to me, there's this was a year where they just missed. And this is actually the year that ends up creating the issue where they then go to 10 films. That's right. There's a very good reason for that because in that year, three of the best movies, four of the best movies, because Wally would have been nominated for Best Picture as well had they actually had 10 movies. You would have had Wally, Tropic Thunder, uh, The Dark Knight, and The Wrestler all would have been nominated for Best Picture yeah. in that year because they all kind of had their own followings. It would have made it a lot more exciting. All right, John. We're moving on to your number 99, and boy, will we talk Oscars with this one because, boy, do I love it. But one of the all-time classic movies, really no denying that, the one that started it all for Pixar, Toy Story from 1995. John, take it away because it is your movie after all. It is, and part of this comes down to the nostalgia of it. Like, both of us, second movie that we saw in theaters, that's a big deal Uh, because we were, like, not even four yet when this movie came out. So seeing that movie in theaters, having that memory of seeing the movie in theaters, big deal. And also, this entire the entire Toy Story franchise kind of echoes our life with the way that it grew up too. Because as we were graduating high school, Toy Story 3 was coming out and we had Andy also graduating, moving on. And so for me, this movie is really personal because the Toy Story franchise is incredibly personal. And... I saw this movie in 95 with my mom and then I saw Toy Story 2 with my mom and then I saw Toy Story 3 with my mom and then two years ago I saw Toy Story 4 with my mom because that's just the thing you do with this and these characters that we're presented with the cowboy and the spaceman Mm -hmm. the epitome of childhood for a childhood boy and we get to see this conflict between the two of them and this idea of not accepting the new and sticking with the traditional and rejecting modernization and that's kind of our basic premise at the beginning of this movie because we are immediately started with Woody being established as the be all end all Mm -hmm. and that's what's one of the most brilliant things about this movie is we start with Woody on this high pedestal he is the biggest hero ever possibly we know a little later that Andy clearly knows Buzz Lightyear exists, but he's still all about Woody. Mm-hmm. And everything is this Western theme in his imagination. His entire bedroom is decked out in this Western theme. And to then, in those few minutes where we see Andy playing out the bank robbery. Yeah. And that right there establishes how badass Woody is. And then we just see it all come crashing down. Mm -hmm. It's so brilliant. And especially for a film that was so progressive for its time. Oh yeah. We're, we're talking the first full length feature film, completely CGI. Like CGI did not look very good before this. No. It did and not. 
And for us to actually get this movie that has this compelling storyline throughout it, these compelling characters that everyone who grew up in the 90s relates to in one way or another, that's a really big deal. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so one could argue that this is actually the wrestler is if Woody's life really went bad, if he wasn't able to rebound and find friendship with Buzz because he was getting to that point of I'm on top of the world and now here I go. But <laughs> what I think is so so my favorite of the Toy Story franchise is the second one. I think the second one is the best. And as soon as I watch the first one, I sit down and watch the second one because I just love the second one. I just I love and I love the first one too. I think every Toy Story movie, I love them all. Um, third one might be my least favorite. Don't tell anybody. But all that being said, what I think is so smart from the guys at Pixar when it, I Lasseter directed this one, but I know everybody was pretty much working on it, is they knew that their CGI was good, but they knew it wasn't great yet. And so what they elected to do was be like, humans, we're not really going to show those because we are not going to make them look very good at all. So Andy in this movie kind of looks creepy. He kind of has, has a hollow face. He's a little crooked jaw. Eyes are real wide, whatever. They don't focus much on him. We barely see, is it Bonnie? Is his sister Bonnie in this one? Or is Bonnie the girl in the third one? I forget, but Either way, we don't see his sister. Hannah's the the sister. So no, Hannah's Sid's sister. Sid's sister. Okay. Well, anyway, I'm blowing this. But anyway, Sid, though, we do see a lot of. But he's supposed to look creepy because he's the bad kid. And that's okay. Hannah, with her dark hair and emo look, it really, really works. Molly was this. That's, yeah. that's, that's the sister. But anyway, they focus on that character because he's okay to look bad. Mm-hmm. Everything else is the toys and the toys can have their blemishes and, and the toys can have their issues and, and whatever else it is, because you're going to give a little bit with that. But when it comes to a human, we're like, that doesn't look like a person. I don't like this. And it, when it's not stylized purposely, you know, I always look like an up, obviously nobody has a head like Carl Fredrickson. If you do, yeah. I apologize. But, but you know, it is, they do that on purpose and that's the style here. They didn't have that style established. And to just focus in on these toys. And like you said, to give so much heart to a cowboy, a cowboy toy. I mean, not for nothing, who threw out their toys after 1995? If you were a kid born in 90 to like 99, you didn't throw out your toys because you were thought you thought you were going to hurt their feelings. I didn't throw out my toys until I moved out of school or out for school like even then i took some with me because i was like no i can't do this my toys will have their feelings hurt Mm -hmm. and and that's how impactful this movie is for an entire generation Mm -hmm. because it it made us realize oh man i'm playing with these toys they're they're feeding off my imagination Mm -hmm. but do they have their own Mm -hmm. what happens when i close the door to my bedroom yeah and it's just a fun thing to think about. It's a fun escape from reality. Mm-hmm. And and it's but it still makes you very empathetic and sympathetic and yeah. all the things you're supposed to feel in a movie with humans. And and that's that's the thing that that was so well done with this is you take these toys that, you know, what if a toy really did have its own thoughts and what it said on the box is actually what that toy thought was going on and Buzz Lightyear coming out only to find out Jordan Alford says in here, uh, his arc is almost as depressing as the wrestler when he tries to fly and he can't fly and he's trying to go out the window. You know, it's, it's really, really 
sad, but also because it's in the guise of an animated movie, you don't you don't feel that. You don't feel that as as much as you would if it was like, you know, I don't know, the beginning of kick ass when the guy thinks he can fly off the building. Um, you know, so it's so well done, but but there's so much heart in this one. And and it's funny because you watch Bugs Life, which was the next Pixar movie, doesn't have that same thing. And it's almost like in that one, they try to go with style over substance a little bit. And in this one, they're like, you know what? We're just going to tell the story and the heart is going to be the heart. And these guys are going to be who they are. And we're going to get all your favorites in there. Bo Peep. And I love Arlie or or, yeah, Arlie Ermy playing the, uh, the, the sergeant in the, uh, the the little green sergeant, (laughs) Slinky dog, like all these toys that are very, very recognizable. Mr. Potato head, all of that. And give them their unique personalities and and just say, you know, you either buy it or you don't. And I think 99% of people bought this. And and it, I mean, it still holds up. I mean, granted, when you sit down and you watch Soul and you go, oh, my God, that's where they've progressed to. You know, I mean, that's not even animation. That's just, that's, I mean, that's just, that's science fiction. But you go to, you go to this one 26 years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, it holds up. There's a lot of creepy looking movies that came out after this one. That's right. I mean, the Polar Express is terrifying, kids. So <laughs> it's 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 incredible what they were able to do. Yeah, and there are even scenes in this movie where it kind of just feels like a showcase of CGI too. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly, I'm thinking of the scene when they're at Andy's birthday party when the ball comes bouncing through. It's like, mm-hmm. look how realistic we can make this ball look. And like those are the moments in this movie. Where you're just like, wow, I cannot believe there's this much technology here and that it never really been done before. We had what? Reboot was the first full CGI series and it came out in, was that 92 to 94 that it started? So like it's it was also very recent at this point and CGI was just this new technology. And to think now, 26 years later, like CGI is everywhere. Everywhere. Everyone. It all started with Toy Story. Yeah, and and you know, at the time when this movie came out, the Oscars didn't have a best animated feature film category. They had a best animated short, which I find very interesting, but they didn't have a best animated feature. And and up until this point, the only animated movie that had ever been nominated for best picture was Beauty and the Beast. That was the only one. Now Toy Story 3 has, Up has, there's been movies now throughout history that have ended up being nominated for best picture. But up until then, there wasn't even a category for it because people weren't taking it all that seriously (laughs) and and this kind of forced people to take it seriously because the other movie that came out this year disney made obviously this one wasn't disney at the time it is now and somehow they slapped their logo in there on disney plus which really freaks me out but anyway because kids that was not there uh it just said a pixar production there was nothing walt disney studios presents that's new uh that was not from 1995 but was pocahontas Mm -hmm. now pocahontas wins a whole bunch of oscars this year it beats Randy Newman for for uh, you got a friend in me. Crazy. It wins with Colors of the Wind, which Colors of the Wind's a good song, but come on, you got a friend in me is iconic. Um, the score loses to Pocahontas, and it was nominated for uh, original screenplay. The first animated movie nominated for a writing category in the history of movies. Now remember, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs came out in 1937. This was the first time. It was almost 60 years before it even got a writing nomination. And Disney was making classics throughout that time. Yeah, but I mean, the writing team for this movie was incredible. 
Oh, I know. And I will say this now so that anybody can tune out if they don't want to. I am not a Joss Whedon fan. I do not like Joss Whedon. I think he is the most overrated writer of all time. Continue. But even besides Joss Whedon, we have one of the Coen brothers writing this movie. I know. I know. Like, these are... And that's a Coen brother coming off of Fargo. Yeah. Like... Going into Fargo. Going into Fargo. He was going into Fargo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, But... We're talking about some pretty big writers when it comes to Hollywood at this point, just showing off with Toy Story. And they're working with this small animation company to make this film. And the characters that we get in it are really what drives the story. Yeah. We, the plot of this movie is pretty basic. Mm-hmm. But these characters are each so individual. And they all have their little quirks and every single person you talk to will be able to relate to one of the characters in this movie. And it might not be the character you think. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's another one. Like I was saying with the wrestler, like as I age, I I view that movie differently. This is another one. Mm -hmm. I mean, you really start to feel for what you feel for what he is a kid, but then you start to feel for what he as you get older. Cause you're like, Am I about to be that thrown out to mm-hmm. You know, we're both pushing 30 now. And by the time we're done with this, we might be pushing 55. But, but you know, you start to feel like like that. You know, you've, you got the Buzz Lightyear thing where you got the ego. And then you're like, well, maybe I'm not as great as I thought I was. Or maybe you're just miserable like Mr. Potato Head. You know, like, or maybe you smoke a lot of weed like I'm assuming Slinky Dog does. I mean, who knows? But, but it's just... It's very interesting how every single I, I, I so on Letterbox I, I like to type in like a little tidbit every time mm-hmm. I watch one of these movies, and and I put in this one like still the best characters Pixar's ever done, and I like other I have up on my list I have Wally on my list I would probably say that um, Ratatouille's probably closer to making my list than Toy Story even though both of them are close, but these are still the best characters. I mean, how many times a week? Do you quote Buzz Lightyear or Woody or Rex or Ham? It happens all the time. Absolutely. All the time. All the time. And that that just goes to show how much effort they put into this, essentially, this children's movie. Mm -hmm. And some things in this movie are terrifying to think of as an adult. Things like, do the toys know their toys right away and Buzz is the outlier? Or did all of them start off like Buzz? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, that's a scary thing to think about. And if Buzz is the only one, Buzz is essentially a mental patient in this movie. Yeah. And Woody's just there trying to break his delusion the entire time, which is not what you should do when someone is oh. suffering from delusions. <laughs> and then you have other questions like the idea of first impressions that's put out throughout the entire movie. Because obviously, essentially, this movie just highlights xenophobia. Mm-hmm. And how it can be, how we, how it's such a bad thing because it doesn't let you actually see who people are, because Woody is scared because he's being replaced by Buzz, mm-hmm. and yes, that's slightly xenophobic, but it's more just that's just more a new thing. That's more than anything. The real xenophobia comes in when we get to Sid's room, yeah, and we're looking at these misfit toys, these toys that these Franken toys that Sid has made, and because they look scary and they look different. Woody and Buzz are freaking out the entire time because they just think, oh no, they're going to hurt us. When really all they're trying to do is help the entire time. And like, that's a really important message to give to a kid at a young age. Yeah. 
Well, and especially to have those those toys have no way of communicating pretty much the entire yeah. movie. They don't speak, you know, at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another really smart thing, especially from the other thing. And they all have unique voices. I mean, Don Rickles yeah. is Mr. Potato Head. Um, like it's it's unreal. It's it's it it is a really well done thing. And and those toys are terrifying. I don't want any of those toys. I don't want them, but yeah. I do get what you're like. The messaging there is like, still are probably going to try to help you at the end of the day. They're not bad just because Sid has beaten the living daylights out of them. You know, they, they're they just, a little different. Yeah. That's, that's all, that matters. all. That's all that matters. No. And, 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 and I think that, you know, for a movie that is so simple in its story, but to, to have these, this type of like messaging behind it all, mm-hmm. They were like you said. They were just thinking ahead. This wasn't like because I, I just keep going to Pocahontas because it was the same year. <laughs> Hello, cat. In in inside, Lewin Davis is in like three weeks or so, uh, yeah. or thirty weeks maybe. I don't know, but it's in a while. So chill, cat. But <laughs> but when you when you look at Pocahontas, you watch that movie. It literally starts where John Smith shows up, and within about five seconds, he's speaking the same language as Pocahontas. There's really no, sense. no, there's no thought into this movie. No. It was like, oh, let's take the time period, let's sing catchy songs, and let's have the ending where she saves him. Like that's really all that movie is. It's literally just like save him. Mm-hmm. And there's no connection there. You don't feel for those characters. They don't. They don't. They don't actually. You know, have any type of backstory that makes you go, oh man, I hope they succeed. Like yeah. honestly, John Smith could have died at the end of that movie, and I'd have been like, dope, good, glad Disney went dark good for them but this movie was so focused on those relationships and Mm -hmm. all of the relationships bo peep and woody um you know ham and rex as like the buddies and and woody and slink and slink's trying to decide am i actually close with him or am i not and i don't want to turn my back on him because he's just like he just likes every all of these relationships all of them and everybody has a place here it's so it's just so well thought out at a time where nobody was asking for this. Nobody was saying we need an animated movie that's going to make me think on a deeper level and that's going to still have I mean, I would say Woody and Buzz are two of the most iconic characters in film history. Mm-hmm. And this movie is 1995 and it's animated. Like out of out of all of the if you really think about it and and maybe it's cuz I'm a boy, but if you were to ask you know, a kid like which movie characters do you think of first? Like for an animated movie, you know, the six, seven year old kid who's seen their fair share. Yeah. Probably going to say Woody and Buzz, unless they have a severe obsession with like one of the other movies, mm-hmm. but nobody, I, Cinderella, Snow White, all of those, the princesses and things like that. Little girls want to dress up as them. So that makes more sense. But if you were just to say like, not that you want to dress up as just as like, if you could play one toy, they're probably going to this movie. And that's crazy because there was a world without Woody and Buzz. Like the world existed for a long time without Woody and Buzz. And it's weird to think about because it just feels like they're a staple that's been around since 1900. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's like Mickey Mouse. Yeah, exactly. Especially something like Woody, right? Woody is this classic cowboy. And I mean, as we explore further into the, this series, we find out that he is a retro cowboy toy and everything and he does feel like something that should have existed longer than 26 years but he's only been 26 years and i think part of what it comes down to is they treated this movie like an actual movie instead of an animated movie Mm -hmm. they they 
were very focused on the shots they were making in the movie and how they were doing all that. They were focused on the characters and their relationships like we've already talked about. But the most important thing is that they just treated it like this was a movie for adults, despite the fact that it was geared at kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what Pixar, I mean, that's what Pixar is known for at this point, because, you know, you think about what was becoming of Disney at this mm-hmm. point. They had the rough 80s that ended with The Great Mouse Detective and Little Mermaid. And The Little Mermaid was a song fest. Mm-hmm. It's such a good movie because it's so catchy. Like every song in it, you're going to be walking around humming it for days. Then you get Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King. I mean, they just went on a run here. Mm -hmm. But it was these two opposites meeting, songs, everybody singing around them. How are they going to get together? How is this going to work? That was every movie. The mute princess and and Eric, the, the man who has no personality. You know, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin and Jasmine. I guess the Lion King, not so much. But but when you start to really look at those and then you see what Toy Story did, it was like, we don't care about the songs. Like, yeah, we're going to bring in Randy Newman who can write a catchy tune, no doubt about it. But we're just going to bring him in. He's going to sing songs in the background. Nobody's going to be sit- like, it's not the characters aren't going to sing. They're not going to be aware of the songs happening. No. You know, everybody talks about you got a friend of me. Strange Things is an unbelievable song. I mean, that's a depressing song. I feel like that every day. I mean, that's that's a very brutal song. And so when you hear that, and that's in a kid's movie, the kids aren't picking up. They're just going strange things. That's all they got. They're not thinking about what actually is in that song and how that's going. And they they just went for something completely different, which was kind of a buddy action movie mm-hmm. that, that just – is fun and is going to take you to places you've never really seen before. It's not going to be, Oh, how can we get them in a boat or a canoe so they can sing a song together? Or how can they run through a herd of animals and sing together? No, it was just, we're going to make a movie like any other movie. Mm -hmm. And that's what it was. It has a soundtrack. Mm -hmm. They don't sing the soundtrack. It has a soundtrack. And, and you know, obviously there were some Disney movies that didn't do that. Black cauldron, garbage, great mass detective, great movie. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it didn't, but yeah, this is, this is really, this is really it. And then Jake BB says here, and then for the second movie, they had a song that makes people cry. Yeah. And then they go with the, when she loved me and everybody's like, all right, cool. Now you guys had to up the montage game too. And really want to ruin everybody's life. But I just think it was so smart what they did. And it set the tone. I mean, when you're making your first movie, it's kind of like with snow white. When, when Disney made snow white, you need it to be good. And you need to let people know this is what you're getting because if it doesn't work, you're done. And I guess the same thing with DreamWorks. And I don't know if their first movie was Shrek, but I feel like that was the first one people saw. I don't know if it was their first DreamWorks animation. I'm not sure. But it wasn't? No. Okay. It was but, actually Shrek was actually their uh their lesser project. What was their first? Their head well, their their head animators were working on the Prince of Egypt at the time. And if you were kicked off that project, you were put on Shrek. That's right. That's right. But did did the Prince of Egypt came out first? I think they came out the same year. Came out the same year. Well, either way, you got to set your tone. That's what I'm trying to say. And Pixar did a great job of setting their tone of, yes, we're going to be something for kids, but we also want to let everybody in on this. Because now you watch Soul. If my kid watched Soul, my kid's going to, their IQ is going to raise 45 points immediately overnight. And and they're going to be starting to think about dark things or about, oh, what does my life mean? I'm like, you're two years old. Go play with your toy. Like, yeah. it's insane what they have become, but they did set the tone right away because this isn't a kid's movie. My parents would gladly sit down and watch Toy Story with me any day of the week, no matter what age I was, because it was a fun movie that anybody could get behind. 
Yeah, exactly. And that that's just goes to show how progressive Pixar was, not just in the animation, but also in their approach to making movies. And that's why they still hold up as one of the best animation studios ever to exist. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I haven't seen anything from Studio Ghibli, so that's really the only other one that people really could throw out there, but I haven't seen anything, so what do I know? Those movies are impossible to find unless you pay for them. <laughs> and, like, they're not on any streaming service in order to be found, so I've, I'm... That could be my whole top 25. I just don't know it yet. Um, but, yeah, I mean... And, and the fact, too, that this was able to make a franchise think about what disney was again going back to disney because this was not a disney movie i don't care what anybody says when you go back and you look at disney they make aladdin and they're like aladdin 2 prince of thieves here we go moving on beauty and the beast beauty and the beast 2 put it in christmas time or something like that lion yeah. king we well, could do lion king 2 that sucked All right lion king one and a half let's do that they're making these straight to dvd sequels that's all they were doing was yeah, making straight to dvd sequels and then Toy Story comes after this, after Pixar comes, Toy Story, Bugs Life, Toy Story 2, immediately within a three-year span. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that Disney essentially uses their sequels for their animation grads. It's like their final projects for their animation studio is to make these sequels based on these other Disney films. But they knew that Toy Story was such a big deal. They actually had to make a full-blown sequel to it, and it, it really just changed the game when it came to animated movies. It really did. It really, really did. And is this your highest-ranked animated movie, or do you have other animated movies on this list? No, I have one ranked really high. I have Beauty and the Beast in my 20s. Okay, so you do have Beauty and the Beast on here. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Beauty and the Beast was one that was a close cut for me. But yeah, I have I have two animated movies out of this, or, or two animated movies on my list, I believe. Maybe three. Uh, what do we count? Who framed Roger Rabbit as? But anyway, um, fair point. I also have some Japanese anime in there too. So, okay, I'm, I'm just more more animated movies on the list. It just is funny though how like even when you make a top 100 list, it's hard to find a place for the animated movies. Mm -hmm. But then at the end of the day, if you were to say to me, "What do you want to watch tonight?" I'd probably go with a movie on Disney Plus. Like, that's just a fact. And so that's the whole point of what we're doing here with this top 100. And like, what we're trying to just say is like, whatever your favorite movies are, that's your favorite movies. Who cares if I like the wrestler and somebody could say you're pretentious and you like the pressing stuff. And what I do, that's fine. That's okay with me. You don't have to like everything I like, but I see all the time. And, you know, people are always either trying to be impressive with their favorites. I had a friend in college who his favorite movies were, what was it? It was the Godfather. And like Big Daddy, those were his two favorite movies. I'm like, okay, so your favorite movie is Big Daddy, but you're, you don't like The Godfather nearly as much as you like Big Daddy. Like, but it was one of those where he felt like he had to say something impressive so that then he could say what his real favorite movie was. Let's just say your favorite movie. Who cares? And it, with, when it comes to animated movies, I still feel like even when we're doing a list like this and being like, whatever you got, just do it. I still feel like there's a little underestimating of animated movies because it's like, well, let me throw in the like this movie instead. Who knows? Maybe in 10 years when I'm when I'm longing for childhood because I'm pushing 40, I'll be like, you know what? I should go back and I should I should just love all these older Disney movies and put that in my top 25. I mean, who cares? It's it's just and 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 it's the same reason why an animated movie has never won Best Picture at the Oscars or anything along those lines, because they're just not taken as seriously. No. Pixar changed that game, though. They really did change that game to the point where when Toy Story 3 came out, People thought it was going to win Best Picture. It had a shot. 
I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like people were saying, Oh, I'm going to put money on it, but social network, toy story, three, the King's speech, black Swan. People really didn't know what was good. The fighter had a hell of a crowd that year. People really didn't know it was going to win that year. Yeah. Toy story three was in the mix up was in the mix in 2009. It was in the mix. Hell up should have probably won best picture in 2009. But what <laughs> do I know? But Pixar started all of that with, with toy story. And yeah, there's going to be people who look back and go, Oh, the animation. Uh, but, but think about what that was in 1995. And then go watch any other movie that came out between 95 and, and 2001 before Shrek. Yeah. That wasn't Pixar. It didn't look like that. Not at all. And they were changing the game. And now pretty much every anime movie you watch is, is CGI. Mm-hmm. Almost every single one of them. So, whew. yeah, Toy Story. Toy Story is a good one, man. It really is. Doesn't make my list. Makes John's at 99. But, I mean, it's 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 hard to find somebody who would sit down and say to you, like, oh, I don't like Toy Story. That movie sucked. <laughs> like, it's just it's not real. Yeah, exactly. It's It's just a feel-good movie. And... In our list, you need those every once in a while. Yeah, you do, because it, it, it gets dark. And uh, luckily, next week isn't dark. So there no. there is that going. But, uh, John, do you have anything else you want to say about Toy Story? Uh, I know I know we we did mention that it was a uh, first anime movie nominated for writing, ultimately lost to The Usual Suspects. Unfortunately, even with all those great writers, it had no chance in hell. Um, <laughs> sorry, you just happened to go up against one of the all-time great first scripts in the history of movies. But... Anything you want to say on Toy Story before we move on with this? Give it a watch, guys. It might. Maybe you watched it this week like we did. Maybe you watched it as a kid. Maybe you've never seen it before. Give it a watch and just delight in being a child again for the 80 minutes that this movie runs. There you go. Well, next week is a pretty delightful week. And then it gets pretty weird from there on. So enjoy next week because after that, there's going to be some darkness. There's going to be some weeks where both movies are dark. There's going to be some weeks where one movie is incredibly dark and the other movie is a comedy. And we don't just enjoy next week because after that, it's going to start getting weird. That's what's going to happen. So next week, number 98, John's got Tropic Thunder. I have the Dark Knight. Both movies from 2008 which was just what the wrestler was from. Don't, we did not have this planned. We don't know how this happened, but all of these movies, we are talking about three movies from 2008 in a two episode span, three out of four movies. It's unbelievable. It's, it's unbelievable that that happened. It's not purposeful. My first four movies are all actually from, well, three of them are from the two thousands. And then the fourth one is, well, no, two of them are from the two thousands. And then the other two are from like the 2010. So, and then I start getting into, you know, other stuff but just something to think about so next week should be fun fun not necessarily the case with with what's coming uh further down the line will be great conversations but when you start talking about some of these they do get a little dark all that being said if you're enjoying this please spread the word uh you know this is obviously a survivor channel first but what john and i are trying to do is just express our love for movies and and talk about it and have fun with it. And I know based on the people who've come back and watched, it seems like there is an audience for this. Got a lot of listens on iTunes, which made us both very, very happy, made it feel like it was worth our while, even though we do this anyway, just because it's fun. But if you're enjoying it, spread the word, tell people about it. If you know any places that'd be good to post this or anything along those lines, go ahead and post it there. We just want people to hear it. And uh, 
you know, maybe get some people excited about watching movies again as theaters are starting to come to life. I mean, it looks like we're having some Oscar type movies coming up uh, here in February of 2021. If you are listening. So next week, not sure the date and time yet probably will still be Tuesday, uh, but tune in for our number 98 movies, Tropic Thunder and the dark Knight. If you can't find time to watch those movies in the next week, remove something else from your schedule because they are two of the most fun movies ever made. So enjoy John. Thanks again for being on here. We'll see everybody next week.